And I want to start today with a quote from the book that we're following along with this series, The Rest and Renewal, Finding Rest and Renewal in God. And the quote is this, simply this, a busy life can murder our hearts. So writes Mark Buchanan in his book, The Rest of God, yet we wear or can wear our busy lives as a badge of honor. And if people ask us how we're doing and we answer we're very busy, that is affirmed and seen as valuable. Our culture practices busyness. It doesn't stop. We don't have a cultural day of rest. We just keep going and it can feel energizing with much to do and many obligations. But our bodies, minds, and souls have some limits. And I shared with you how 30 years ago I had settled into a work routine of six days a week, five evenings a week, every week, until my body and mind did a forced stop. I had to take some months off work to recover, and we need to figure out how to resist an over-busy life that will inevitably drain us. Buchanan quotes author Wayne Mueller, who writes about the cost of busy busyness. He says, people from all walks of life, all ethnicities, all economic classes experience hurt, fear, and isolation the more their lives speed up. Despite their good hearts and equally good intentions, their work in the world rarely feels light, pleasant, or healing. Instead, as it all piles endlessly upon itself, the whole experience of being alive melts into one enormous obligation. Buchanan notes that there's a way to measure if our lives are too busy or our souls are out of balance. And it's simply to ask ourselves this, how much do we care about the things that we care about? And if we stop caring about people, both the lost and the found, if we stop caring about the church or for friendship, if we stop caring about truth and beauty and goodness, when we cease to laugh when our children laugh and instead tell them to be quiet, when we cease to weep when our spouses weep and wish they weren't so emotional, when we hear news of trouble among others and our first thought is we hope we don't have to get involved, we might be over busy. Too much going on in our lives. And Buchanan advocates a recovery of the practice of Sabbath, involves, which involves ceasing from work for the purpose of finding rest and renewal in God. So Sabbath is not leisure time. Watching a movie is not Sabbath. Watching a sporting event is not Sabbath. It is slowing down to think of God, hear from God, and respond to him. It can include going out into his creation to take note of his beauty and his creativity. But we struggle to get there. We may agree, oh, it's good to slow down and spend time with God, yet we might seldom to do, it, do it because so many other things may crowd out our time. And today we're going to look at a major hindrance to Sabbath and finding rest with God, and we will discover it in a short passage that has become somewhat famous about Jesus and two sisters. And here we will see this thing that blocks Sabbath and refreshment 
in God. And then we're going to look at a practice or a way that can help us overcome it so we can more regularly experience God and rest in him. So please find Luke 10 verses 38 to 42 in your Bibles or on page 733 in the Bibles in front of you. Luke 10, 38 to 42, which immediately follows the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says simply this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, Jesus and the disciples are on one of their ministry journeys where Jesus would proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God and he would display the power of the kingdom through his miracles and through his healing. He would teach the principles of the kingdom. He would bring good news to those who sought hope and they come to a village where a woman named Martha welcomes them into her house. And in that time, hospitality was considered one of the highest cultural values. In fact, it was a moral virtue, a widespread cultural expectation. And if you fail to provide hospitality to someone, it shamed the whole community. It would be a little bit like someone not shoveling their walk and sidewalk all winter, or someone not cutting their grass all summer, except way more serious in this context. And Martha welcomes Jesus and the disciples into her home, and she gets busy likely preparing a meal. And then we're told she has a sister, Mary. Now, what should Mary be doing right now? If 13 house guests suddenly came to your house, Mary as a good hostess, should be helping her sister with all the preparations. She should be doing whatever was needed to ensure the guests are well looked after and are well hosted. But what does Mary do? She sits at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. And that is not going to help get the meal done. That's not going to move things forward on the hospitality checklist. Maybe Mary could listen while she went in and out of the room setting the table. But sitting down and not doing anything didn't make any sense. It violated one of the culture's top values. Martha has put up with this for a while, but finally her frustration boils over. And she's so upset, she breaks protocol. She interrupts a teacher in front of everyone and accuses him of not caring about the critical value of hospitality, about the service that she's doing for him, and then tells the Lord what to say to her sister Mary. While Mary listens to what the Lord has to say. One can't help sympathize with Martha. 
She's busy doing good work, a good work of service. She has a heavy responsibility caring for all of these men. The disciples and Jesus had real needs of food, shelter, and rest. She can't do it all alone, or at least can't do what she thinks needs to happen all alone. So she interrupts Jesus, questions his compassion, tells him what to say. But Jesus doesn't do what Martha wants. She, he doesn't say what she wants him to say. Instead, he gently rebukes and redirects her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Hmm, maybe the Lord is more aware of Martha's situation than she realizes. She thinks he doesn't care, but the repetition of her name indicates care. He communicates, he sees her, he cares for her very much and diagnoses her problem. You are anxious and upset about many things. Sounds like a person with an overly busy life. And then verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus does not discount the importance of hospitality, yet he raises something else above it. And that something is relationship with him. Jesus teaches that a personal relationship with him takes priority over service for him. Serving the Lord has to take second place to seeing the Lord. In affirming Mary's choice, we see that paying attention to Jesus is more important than anything else in life or culture. And I wonder if we believe that. Or if we do believe it, if our lives show it. It's one thing to affirm the priority of Jesus on a Sunday morning when we're sitting in church. It's another to live it out in our lives. We struggle to pay attention to Jesus. Why? Many reasons. But a huge one is found in this little account, and it plays a significant role in keeping us from practicing Sabbath and finding rest in the Lord. And it's found in verse 40, in the first sentence. But Martha was distracted. Distraction from God is a major hindrance to finding rest in God. And the word distraction means to be pulled about in many directions. Martha had multiple pulls on her attention. All the things that she was thinking about to prepare for this meal and host all these people and the growing frustration that her sister Mary was not helping her. These distractions kept her from seeing the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet and receive instruction from the God of the universe in her own home. Do you think there might be anything in our world that distracts us from God? We live in a time with virtually unlimited access to information, and to one another, we can connect with so many people online without restriction. We're more aware of the activities of one another. We have more TV channels and entertainment choices and leisure choices and career and job opportunities and schools to choose from and more access to the world than any generation in all of history. 
And much of it is wonderful and a great blessing, but if we're not careful, it can lead to major distraction from God. Yet we're not the first people to deal with this. Staying focused on God has always been a challenge. John Newton writes about this, and he lived in the 1700s. He's the author, a member of Amazing Grace, the hymn, and the former slave ship captain who became a pastor, and he writes, I find that to keep my eye simply upon Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. And then he talks about Christ-clouding distractions. He once admitted this about his prayer life. I approach the throne of grace encumbered with a thousand distractions of thought, each of them which seems to engage more of my attention than the business I have in hand. This is one of the major battles of the Christian life, to fight for focus on Christ. Author Tony Renke, who is a student and has done a deep study of Newton, writes, if we are convinced that communion with Christ is our chief good, why is living in the light of his presence so difficult? Why are we so Christ negligent? Why is it that our minds are so scattered when it comes to Christ? This is the battle of the Christian life. And then, Renke discusses five major distractions that can take our focus off Christ and see if maybe one of these is true in your life. So distraction number one, entertainment. We live in an entertainment culture. The word entertain involves um, getting or gaining and keeping the attention of an audience for the purpose of their pleasure and the entertainer's profit. And you know the phrase entertain the idea, it means we are willing to give an idea time and space for consideration. Yet we might allow entertainment unregulated access into our lives. So we plop down and watch any old movie for hours. We watch YouTube wherever it leads us. We scroll down social media to find out what all the celebrities are doing or what our friends are up to. We get the latest video game and we play it for hours. And it's not to say all entertainment is wrong, but binging on entertainment and starving our time with Christ can harm our soul. We can try to hide or escape from life and entertainment, and it works to distract us for a little while, but when it's over, we still face the reality of our lives. And coming to Christ with our life realities is far more productive. Distraction two, worldliness. And this means the things of the world become our primary focus. Making money, pursuing a life of pleasure, seeking power, climbing the ladder, that can consume our focus. The things of this world. When, whereas 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So we've got entertainment, worldliness, three, self-righteousness. And this can happen when we have increasing confidence in our righteousness and rightness and everyone else's wrongness. We compare ourselves to others, we think ourselves superior, and then we need to defend our righteousness continually. This especially happens among religious people. We look at others and conclude, oh, well, I don't do what they do, or we don't do what they do, therefore we are more righteous. And self-righteousness can feel very good for a while. It feeds our ego, yet such thinking leads us away from Christ. The Apostle Paul was perhaps the most self-righteous Pharisee of his time. Yet as he was confronted with Christ, he had to reflect on his credentials of righteousness. And he writes this in Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, whatever my credentials for righteousness, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then number four, self-consumed pride. And we can become distracted by having too much focus on ourselves. It's natural to focus on ourselves. We have to live in these bodies, with these minds, with the personality God has given us and all the inputs and experiences that we've had in life. And so we try to figure out life and our place in it. And we have to think about ourselves to do that, but we can become too self-focused. And we can do that in two ways, the arrogant way or the despondent way. The arrogant way is pretty obvious for everyone to see. When people boast about themselves and talk about how great they are, they're too self-focused. They do it so others will notice. And if we're focused on our own greatness, we're not going to focus on the greatness of someone else like Christ. But it also goes the other way, where we can be self-consumed in a negative way about ourselves, which still draws attention to ourselves. And we do this by putting ourselves down to others. I'll, I'll never do that. I'll never be as pretty. I'll never get a boyfriend or a girlfriend I'll never be as good as them. And then what does that provoke? A response, an affirmation, a compliment from someone else. And I get it. I think I've done that probably many times. Our ego tries to fill itself up by comparing ourselves to others, by building ourselves up with positive statements. But the ultimate solution is to find our identity in Christ. And then we can let go of our self-focus and instead live in freedom with him. And then number five, which is probably a common one for many of us, anxious unbelief. Anxious unbelief. Renke writes, few things more quickly cloud over the Christian's joy in Christ than a lack of faith. 
It chokes off all power because faith is what makes it possible to look beyond ourselves for the remedy. Whereas unbelief starts a downward cycle, the more anxiety we feel, the less we see Christ. The less we see Christ, the more anxiety we feel. If Christ is the Son, anxiety is certainly one dark cloud that can overshadow our soul. And this lack of trust in God can be a primary cause for our lack of soul quiet. Yet we hold tightly to our cares. We pull anxiety close like a, a blanket, so close that we cover our faces and cloud our souls from the victory of the sovereign king or sovereign reign of Christ in the heavens. How do we overcome anxious belief? Renke states, the point to see here is how prone we are to find our security or our identity in worldly comforts and self-sufficiency or feeling like we have things under control. We have a desperate need instead for the transforming power of a living sight of Christ by faith in the gospel. So I think what he's saying is a lot of our anxiety happens because we build our lives on finding zones of comfort and on having things under control. And who isn't at rest when they're comfortable and believe that they have things under control? And then when one of those is threatened in some way, we're, we're, we're kind of forced maybe out of our comfort zone or we feel like some situation is beyond our control, what do we spend our energy doing? We, we try to get back into our comfort zone or make things comfortable or we try to control everything. And the problem is, friends, life in the real world will present many things beyond our comfort zone and many more things beyond our control. So we have a choice. Are we just going to try and, you know, get things back in our comfort zone and, and control everything and put all our energy in that? Or will we turn to Christ with it all? Say, yes, this is out of my comfort zone. But it seems like that's what I have to do, so I ask you to give me strength to go through it. Yes, this is out of my control, so I'm just going to have to trust that to you and keep holding on to you. How much energy and distraction do you think we waste in focusing on trying to control things we can't control or getting things back into our comfort zone? But think about the possibility of turning to Christ with our discomfort and the things beyond our control. Think about the difference it might make if we dedicated our anxiety energy to fellowshipping with Christ, to trusting in Christ, to learning about Christ, to soaking in his deep love for us. And this can only happen when we set aside time to slow down and step back and hear from him and be with him. So, those are the five distractions. Maybe you can think of more. And they lead to this conclusion, I think. Prioritizing our relationship with Christ requires the Spirit's help to fight through distractions from Him. And first we learn paying attention to Jesus is more important than anything else in life 
and culture. And then we learn that practicing Sabbath gives opportunity and space to give focused attention to Jesus. And then we learned that distraction from God is a major hindrance to finding rest in God. And so we need to address our distractions. And so this is a simple Sabbath practice I want to pass on to you today that we're going to practice in a moment, but you can do any time. And it's I think it's written on the back page of your bulletin for you. Simply this, number one, ask God to identify the number one distraction that keeps you from focusing on Christ. If you don't already know what it is, ask him to reveal that to you. And then number two is ask for the Spirit's help to fight through this distraction to focus on Christ. We need the Spirit's help to do this. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't be distracted. And do you think that Satan just sits around and doesn't take note of the distractions that he knows we're vulnerable to and then put them in front of us again and again and again. So we need the Spirit's help to overcome and push through these things that distract us from Christ. And then third, make paying attention to Jesus the number one priority in your life. And this is a daily battle. Friends, I've been a Christian for nearly 50 years. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I still get distracted from Christ. The troubles and difficulties of life cloud our vision. I still need to fight to regain that Christ focus. Yet, it's possible. And somehow, Mary understood this. She was able to set aside the cultural and family pressure and instead sit at Jesus' feet. And in this we need to imitate her by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's engage in this Sabbath practice now and I want you to invite you to bow your head and I want you invite you to ask God to identify the number one distraction that keeps you from turning to Christ in your life. And then number two, ask for the Spirit's help to fight through this distraction and instead focus on Christ. And then when we're focused on Christ, ask for his help to make him the number one priority in our lives. And Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we know that there is a battle going on all the time for our minds and for our souls. And the devil loves it when we just ignore you or when some small thing gains our attention that leads us away from you that is not good for us. And it can be so seemingly so innocent and so minor and Yet, before we know it, we haven't checked in with you for days or weeks. And so, we acknowledge the reality of the distractions in our lives, the things that cloud our vision of you. It's part of being human, part of living in this world. And yet, Lord... We know that by the Spirit's power we can overcome these and remain focused on you.
John Newton was able to do it by your spirit's power. The disciples learned how to do it, maybe because of the example of Mary. Not perfectly, none of us perfectly, but a growing focus on you in our lives is what we need. I pray that for everyone here today and watching online. That Jesus Christ will become the number one priority in our lives and focused attention on him is critical. And thank you for your patience with us, Lord, that when we forget this, when we ignore you, you're there, you're waiting, you draw us back with your grace, as you did with Martha. And so we give you glory, Lord, as the most worthy person in the universe on whom we need to build our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.